Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. Glad you're with me. Say it every week, and I'll just let you know why. Because we spend a ton of time choosing the topics, choosing the guests, because all of these things are impacting us these days. And that's maybe the biggest change in environment that I've seen. People appreciate that that rise in interest rates, or maybe that what we're paying at the grocery store. Or, of course, if you look at uh, things like other costs of living that are impacting us, energy prices come to mind immediately. Well, it's all impacting us, and that's what we juggle with every week. That's why I'm so pleased to have Tony Greer with me, TG Macro. This guy's a fabulous analyst. Uh, started out, by the way, a 25 years career as a trader, an analyst, all of that. He brings that to bear. You're going to love what he's got to say about what the market's doing. I'm going to ask him about crypto too, because he was long crypto. He was bullish on crypto, but got out with his subscribers at the top. I want to see what he thinks the future is. But of course, I'll be asking about gold, that kind of stung, uh, thing. I've got Ozzy Jurek with me. Lots to talk about in the real estate side of things. I've got a great I think maybe a shocking quote of the week, I could say, but a goofy award, so much coming your way. We got the employment numbers, all of that. But first, you know, I was asked the other day to sum up the current energy crisis. So, you know, things like the shortages or the record prices we've seen in diesel and gasoline and the blackouts. And I think there's more to come on that. So I thought about it for a moment and the word preposterous popped into my head. And I thought, yeah, that's not bad. Webster's Dictionary defines preposterous as contrary to reason, common sense, nature. I think that's a fair discussion of climate-driven energy policy that does all it can to discourage capital investment in oil and gas as if we'd hit zero fossil fuels right on Greta Thunberg's timeline of 2025 or maybe the less ambitious but still preposterous target of 2030 or 2035 to phase out gasoline-powered engine. You know, that's just one example, by the way and all of it without a comprehensive practical plan. Preposterous to ignore the fact that wind and solar are intermittent and require backup power. It could be nuclear or fossil fuels for when the sun doesn't shine or the wind doesn't blow, just like happened this week in the UK, which produced a huge spike in prices because the country had to scramble for backup power. Preposterous is a fair description for the push to eliminate the current power grid that relies on oil and natural gas and coal and nuclear before there's any sign that a renewable grid is anywhere close to ready. I mean, the consequences of the successful climate campaign to stop investment in fossil fuels, while they were shutting down nuclear, by the way, are obvious, but they should be embarrassing too, with the resurgence of the need for coal. I mean, 45% of all electricity generation in Germany has been coal when the wind stopped blowing. Instead of backing up the grid with zero emission nuclear, coal's been used because they decommissioned three nuclear plants last December, still talking about decommissioning the last three. And contrary to reason or common sense, in other words, preposterous, I think is a fair description of decommissioning nuclear power plants when they don't have the replacement power ready to go. And it's preposterous to have no practical, realistic plan to produce the materials needed to build solar, wind, hundreds of electric well, hundreds of millions of electric vehicles, actually it's 1.3 billion cars worldwide, or the infrastructure to charge it, again, at the same time, discouraging capital investment that's going to be needed if you want to have increased production in natural oil and nat or natural gas and oil. It's even more preposterous for climate activists to actually use the courts to block projects that will produce the raw materials needed for renewable energy, but they are. 
As for increased oil and gas production, well, look at Norway this past week, who just postponed new exploration licenses until 2025. You know, think about this. One of the first acts of the new UK Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, was to reverse Prime Minister Liz Truss policy to once again allow fracking. And as is true to form, from all of our leaders, actually, he has no alternative for power that's needed to double down on that re uh, renewable energy talk instead. Yeah, all the talk about renewable energy. Maybe he didn't notice that big, unrealistic talk about renewables is how they got in the mess in the first place. And how's that increase, by the way, of renewables we hear so much about during this EU energy crisis? Well, listen to this. Wind Europe is an industry association. They say none, not one of its members got a single order for an offshore turbine in the third quarter. As the cliche goes, you just can't make this stuff up. Come on, it was preposterous to levy sanctions on Russian oil and gas and coal when Europe had no alternative supplier. And of course, the outcome was they pushed actual prices higher in the energy market, including for Russian energy. They could have increased supplies, by the way, which would have not only helped alleviate the shortages, the blackouts, price increases, but would have negatively impacted Russian energy revenues, which, of course, funds Putin's war effort. No, they didn't do that. It's nothing short of preposterous, maybe even inexplicable. We just saw this this past week. Biden administration issues expanded licenses with Chevron to import petroleum and petroleum products from Venezuela thereby ignoring not just its human rights record, but its dismal environmental standards too. But the president said no to more Canadian oil, to Keystone XL, which got the highest environmental production standards in the world. Although that's not as confused as his declaration. I mean, I have to laugh saying this. How many times he's gone out and said, hey, want U.S. oil companies to increase production. But at the same time, literally, you don't have to wait long for him to say the U.S. is going to end drilling. And while Western countries are demanding more capital investment in production by oil companies, well, they're pushing windfall taxes. I mean, newsflash, increasing taxes doesn't encourage capital spending as immediately illustrated, by the way, by Chevron's response to the UK's 25% windfall tax, saying it's going to reevaluate its capital investment plans. Harbor Energy is the largest independent North Sea uh, oil producer, says that uh, the tax would simply encourage it to invest elsewhere. You know what? Maybe the most preposterous, certainly most inconsistent, is for EU governments to say no to increasing production, no to fossil fuel use because they want to reduce emissions. And then at the same time, they give out hundreds of billions in subsidies to individuals and billions to subsidizing people's energy use because of the high prices. Well, there goes any hopes of reducing emissions because of higher prices. That's the point of a, a carbon tax. My point is even if one is fully on board with the climate crisis concern, and it really doesn't matter where you stand on the issue, what we've witnessed from the energy-related fallout from climate policy to the reaction to the shortages and price hikes. It's nothing short of stupidity, inconsistency, cluelessness, lack of critical thinking skills, and intellectual laziness. And so far, what's incredible is that seems okay with a lot of people. And it brings me back to that old quote, generally attributed to philosopher Joseph de Mestre, we get the government we deserve. Hey, just a reminder, by the way, we have the World Outlook Conference coming up February 3rd and 4th. Hey, here's the thing that were about 80% sold out on the VIP packages. 
uh, the, the early bird special is gone. You got the price discount. You didn't get it. But what I've got this week is something extra, though, too. Maybe not quite as good as that early bird special, but you get a one ounce maple leaf silver coin. One ounce silver maple leaf coin, but you better get on it because we only got 100 of them. So you want to get on that and you just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, mikesmoneytalks.ca, jump in. I think it makes a great Christmas gift, but I'll talk more about that as we get toward Christmas. But again, go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. As I say, the early bird special sold out. Now we're looking at the last few tickets we've got for the VIP package. But with that, you'll get a one ounce silver coin. And of course, all the regular admissions in there too. It's going to be terrific. I'm really looking forward to seeing you there. I'm always excited to get a chance to talk to Tony Greer. He's the, you know, we founded TG Macro, I guess it's nearly seven years ago now, and it's just launched the icebreaker, which again, we send out stuff on our links and I'll send that to you, but he writes the morning navigator, which I'm amazed at because it's every morning. Uh, incredible. After a long career, of course, in the analytical side and the writing side, all of this, he's out independently. And as you know, I've been recommending his stuff for a long time, but it starts with this, Tony. First of all, thank you. It should start with a thank you for being with us. I'll start with the, you're very welcome, Mike. It's always a pleasure to come and chat with you. Well, and, and I go back uh, right now two years, and, and you were a lonely voice when you talked about, uh, you know, the great reordering that we were going to get, the big change that we were going to see in the markets, uh, which you said, hey, I'm nervous about those tech socks. I like the commodity sector. You got in there, and, and just in case people don't know, you made a lot of money for your subscribers and saved a lot of money. I mean, they still must be sending you thank you notes for getting out of the tech sector, especially, you know, you were talking about all those aggressive ones, which we had too, is because, well, just as an old analyst, I, I couldn't figure out how to make sense of any of it, but you clearly said there's a great rotation coming, get out of those things. You made some nice money, but I, I just want to remind people, you were with us last June and another great piece of advice. I, we talked about that and you said, nah, I'm not jumping in the commodities now. You know, I'm holding back right now. Hey, again, a nice call. No wonder I want to chat with you and get your, your update on what you see happening now. So I know that's broad and I'm rambling, but uh, I want people to know where you're coming from and the record you've had. Thanks very much, Mike. I, I can't thank you enough. I mean, it, it's fun to hear somebody else perceiving the calls and interpreting them the way that I'm trying to communicate them. You, you're spot on with everything that you said. It follows right along with the, with the narrative of how I've been approaching it and the way I've been postured towards markets for my clients. Um, I will say that I got a large number of thank you notes for not having being involved in crypto for the collapse a little bit more than not being in the commodity market for the pullback. But, um, you know, I was a guy that was bullish crypto at the highs, just like everybody else. But, you know, that was a good testament to our process as traders, as we're traders and we don't get left holding the bag. Right. That's not something that's in our DNA. And so it just proved kind of that you can try to participate in that phenomenon that you see trading and using tactical trading abilities, get out unscathed and then have something like that happen before your eyes. But that's a totally separate story. We can go back to the commodity story or the tech story or whichever angle you want to approach. Well, Mike. let me come to crypto for a sec because uh, you're right. Uh, uh, you were one of the people who abandoned it. Uh, 
<laughs> you know, and as I say, do you wake up every morning pinching yourself saying, thank goodness. But here's your, just your guess at this point. Is it done? Has the damage been so great that, uh, you know, we've got a lot of people who are interested in that side of the market, interested in Bitcoin. And we always make a distinction here between Bitcoin and the 19,000 other coins. I should have had a Money Talks coin. I would be a billionaire by now. <laughs> but... Just your take on that. Is there? I, I know there's a lot of things on Sam Bankman-Fried and you know what's to come there. Jail time? No, it's actually the cover of Fortune. <laughs> Jail time? No, he's going to be featured by the New York Times book deal. He's going to have a job at Harvard very soon, without a yeah. doubt. <laughs> but has the damage been so severe that you're not seeing a recovery there for a long, long time, if at all? I, you know, I think it's going to be challenging for. Um, Bitcoin to get on the run or a similar type of run that it was on, right? That was a run that was fueled by abundant liquidity in markets. It was fueled by, you know, near zero interest rates. And that whole world, as we know, has been turned on its head since then and been the reason for the initial collapse. And now, you know, if, if we're going to trade this thing on sentiment and get bearish when guys put their laser eyes on, you know, I'm getting near, I don't know if I'm near the price yet, but I'm getting close in time to being able to be bullish as an outside observer, Mike, if that's fair. You know, sentiment now in Bitcoin is as negative as it gets. There was just a journal um, editorial last week that said, could the final price of crypto be zero? You know, and that's the kind of sentiment that I look forward to to say, okay, people are throwing this, uh, you know, this asset out with the bathwater, they're throwing it out with the crisis on the screen. I totally get that. Um, and at the same time, you know, financial stocks bottomed after Lehman went bankrupt and rallied from there. So this could be that kind of scenario where we're close in time to seeing a, a, just a, a totally bombed out bottom because everybody that was in crypto that got hurt probably had to be out of it, especially now with this fraud on the tape. And knowing that there could be more cockroaches, fraud, collateral damage, I would imagine that most smart institutions have taken down their risk geez, to next to nothing in cryptocurrency. So it might be an okay time to stick your foot in. My, my, my quandary with that, I don't have the edge like I have with oil, um, knowing that you know we're going to keep burning oil and oil is going to go higher. I don't have that edge with crypto because I don't necessarily know that it has to go to a much higher price to become more widely adopted or ubiquitous, which is, I think, the direction it's probably going, you know, where it's going to, you know, continue to be used more and more. I just don't know what price level that has to happen. So uh, I love your point also, though, about the environment that, uh, you know, I sort of have been overlooking that because the the scam for me, the fact that and it was a goofy award. I do a goofy award every week. Last week's goofy award is how is this guy not in handcuffs yet? Uh, you know, and then his interviews exactly. these, this past week have been nothing but jaw dropping. You know, I, I yeah. you know, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I just sort of go, my gosh, you know. No, you and everybody else on Wall Street, Mike, you know, we have this reality that plays uh, that plays out on Twitter. And then you've got to live through the alt reality that the government media complex throws at you. Right. And we've mm -hmm. got to watch. um We've got to watch uh, the journalist, I forget his name, you know, wheel out Sam Bankman-Fried and, and, you know, try to have a serious conversation with him. I mean, that's stuff that you can't take seriously when you see that a guy is already guilty of transferring client funds. That, that, you can't take that away from him. He's guilty. And the funds being gone. Yeah. You know, so, you know, we certainly can't prove it yet, but we have a lot of circumstantial evidence and a lot of history to look back on as to what this looks like. 
So we'll see what the ne- the rest of the uh, Gov Media reality show tries to show us. And unfortunately, it's out of mind in your power whether or not he gets arrested or arraigned or anything like that. My guess is no, but we'll see. Well, it'd be interesting. Maybe one of those uh, signals that you could look for is when all those damn celebrities stand up and swear off ever endorsing another investment for as long as they live. Maybe that'll be our bottom. uh, There you go. There you go. If anything, I feel bad for Tom Brady. It sounds like he got caught pretty bad in this, but we'll see. I don't know proof to that either, but he was certainly uh, involved. Let's say that. But enough about his marriage. Okay. No. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Let, let's come. But the other thing you're, you're saying, which is easy to overlook, is that it was the environment too. I mean, there was no due diligence, obviously, all of that stuff for sure. But yeah, I mean, how important that record low interest rate environment, the flushing of six, seven trillion into the system was for all of these things. Like we're not talking uh, NFTs, but boy, I saw a, conf- a picture of a conference in London and uh, it was lonely in that conference, you know. Yeah, like the talking about turn. something that's off the radar, you know. But again, it comes back to everything we've been talking about, which uh, what you've been writing about on the daily, you know, the morning navigator is, man, that record low interest rate, the environment has changed. I mean, dramatically so. We shouldn't be, uh, a lot of people, oh, I wish it was like it was. It's not going back, not without those interest rates. That's right. And my, you know, my, my thing is um, why the reason it's not going back is because we still are going to have commodity inflation because we see persistent attack on supply, right? You can pick up the newspaper every day and read about how, you know, fossil fuel supply is being attacked, how it's affecting the entire supply chain, right from food, uh, right from energy to food to metals and things like that. So that's not going away. The longer we have no investment in new drilling and new projects, the longer the inflation is going to be with us. That's a fact. Yeah, I did a comment at the outside of the show just talking about, you know, ask, they were asking me how to sum up in that sort of climate energy stuff we're dealing with. And I said uh, the word preposterous jumped in because it's unreasonable. And I'm just astounded. And, and what you're talking about, I think, is the key to going forward, which is, you know, for all the talk, there's no capital investment going to happen. You know, and if you don't have capital investment, that's what you're saying. Like the edge from your years as a trader, first of all, and an analyst too. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, I don't see how we get out of the energy mess over time. No, you know, the thing is when, when we do finally, you know, move U.S. energy policy off the insane level, off, <laughs> off of the batshit crazy where we're not going to drill on, you know, our own federal lands and we're going to cancel pipelines and things like that. This lack of investment is going to be a problem um, for two or three, excuse me, I shouldn't say when, however many years down the road when we decide to change things from off of, you know, a full green movement, uh, carbon neutral by 2030, it's still going to take two bit at four years, five years before we can really get gas prices back down to where they were. Just because there's not enough drills in the Gulf, there's not enough drills in the ground to be able to, you know, supply as long, you know, that's given constant gasoline or energy demand, which seems to continue to grow. So, you know, it's hard to have a prognosis that this is going to get any looser anytime soon, although they've done a pretty good job recently with the SPR sale. That's taken a lot of uh, the tightness out of the crude oil market and taken a bit of the uh, taking the heat off it. But we'll see how long that lasts. Uh, again, strategic petroleum reserve, but down to what nineteen eighty four levels or something like this. To me, though, there's a structural, uh, there's a, a political problem there in that the Saudis know those numbers. My gosh, if I know them on money talks, you know they know them, and they can now yeah. start using that to their advantage. I thought it was set up. 
to take that advantage away from them, you know, from the 1973 oil shock. Now they've put it right back in their hands. So again, I don't see how that's going to end up well. No, they're playing, you know, um, Doomberg said it best when he said that the Biden administration is playing this card game with their hand open, mm. right? The Saudis know, you know, exactly what he's trying to accomplish, number one. They know exactly how much in the SPR he has left, number two, right? And if I'm on the other side of this trade or if I am not, you know, a cozy trading partner with this country, then I'd like to see them drain their strategic reserve to zero if I can, right? That just yeah. puts me an advantage, you know, puts them at a disadvantage against the rest of the world. So that's what we fear is happening. It doesn't feel like um, they're going to be buying oil back at any, you know, lower price or anything like that anytime soon. So, you know, we'll see what the consequences are. Luckily, you know, for, for the consumer, it's, you know, off the highs a little bit and gasoline prices are off the highs. Probably it's at a level that they hold. But all of this is a very tricky dynamic to surf. It's been as difficult as I've ever seen it. We literally see the Biden administration policy versus OPEC plus policy. And they are directly in confrontation with each other. And we'll see how it pans out. I, I, I just, I guess I'm saying in summary, I, I just don't see anything that suggests that the supply challenge is being addressed. The refinery capacity challenge has been re addressed. Uh, I, again, I mentioned this earlier in the show that not a single wind turbine was ordered in the third quarter in Europe. Not one oh you know, for the offshore wind. Yeah. And I'm just saying, yeah, they've come out talking big. Well, this is a great excuse to get more renewable. Well, you do have to do something about it. And yeah. zero, and that's the right number. Zero was what was bought. Oh, man. So, yeah, I so I'm not how, seeing I don't know how, how we're getting out of this. I don't see anything that, uh, you know, they reversed the fracking. Liz Truss comes in, probably the best thing she did is say, we're going to frack again. You know, uh, the new prime minister takes around eight seconds to say, no, we're not. Uh, the, the, so I'm just yeah. not seeing anything. I see the long-term challenges still persisting, and I don't see any contrary information to uh, sort of dissuade me from that view. Not at all. They're still talking about that we're not converting fast enough, right? Mm -hmm. So they, their their foot is on the pedal. Their foot is on the pedal right in front of everybody. And, you know, like I said, it, it eventually is going to probably put upward pressure on the markets. You know, we're, we're probably dealing with um, a little setback in inflation expectations globally right now and a little setback in economic growth expectations globally. So I guess that's probably part of the reason that, you know, oil is back off the highs toward the lows of the range. It's totally fair to say. And, um, you know, we'll see if there's a breakdown coming from here or a spike coming from here, but at least it's getting interesting. The spreads might have come all the way back from, you know, when the calendar, the crude calendar was 11 and a half bucks and spreads were all puffed out and it was, you know, two or $3 for the front month spread. That front month spread is back down to flat. Mm. Right. The front month spreads are, are now no longer dollars can tango. Some of them are a couple of cents can tango. Uh, excuse me, dollars backward dated. They're just a couple of cents backward dated or they're back to flat. And it would seem, you know, the hard part for the trader, the trade community is that you look at inventories and they're at historic lows, you know, even across a lot of the petroleum products. And that doesn't necessarily translate it to higher price all the time. You know, so you've got to you got to watch the spreads and watch for the spreads to get back on their feet, and people start buying front month against the back month before the flat price is going to work its way out of all of this technical turmoil that it's in right now. But this is uh, one of the reasons that your trading background, you know, and 
you, you, by the way, you look way younger than uh, 25 years doing that. But uh, yeah, <laughs> the trading background, you know, is so important, though. You know, I mean, yeah. it, looking inside the dynamic, I mean, obviously, TG macro macro view, but you look inside the trading data and say, no, these are the triggers I'm looking for. And, and I'm hopefully and again, I'll remind people that Tony's going to be with us at the World Outlook Conference. February 3rd and 4th, by then oh, yeah. maybe we'll have some of that resolve. But that's the backdrop that you're looking at these. Uh, and yeah. let me just delve into that a little bit more with some of the other commodities, is that we're seeing this sort of discrepancy between the physical availability, supply, and what the paper market is saying. I mean, silver is one of the ones on my list that, you know, again, I say I'm not, a, I'm not trading it. I'm just, I have a position in it. Because my observation is once these things get popular, they go through the roof. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they, they explode. And yeah. so, you know, an initial, and this is just me, by the way, I'm not giving advice to anybody. I'm not suggesting, I don't know your circumstances, but I'm just saying as an example of, of approach. So I have this sort of core position because if we're going to electrify the world, you ain't doing it without more silver. And you've got, yeah. uh, so it's more the discrepancy we've got between the physical market and the paper market and just we're seeing that in several different commodities yeah yeah we're going to look at that when i come out there in february mike we're going to look i'm going to show uh you know i don't want to give away too much secret sauce but we're going to look at those inventories over history and see where they are now and where they've come from and you know if you just look at basic lme inventories across aluminum copper zinc uh, zinc and nickel there you know they're all bending towards historic lows you know, so you wonder where all this metal is going to come from for the big, you know, the big move towards electronic vehicles and battery power. And, you know, you kind of marvel that how is the price backing off? You know, like it looked for a while there, like copper was going to break through 10K on the LME and keep sailing away, you know, which is a dynamic that we've seen before when there's consistent demand and low inventory. So, you know, what wound up happening is we see a big slowdown in, you know, inflation expectations and they sort of take their foot off of uh, some of the media rhetoric about net zero. If you've noticed, it's been well out of the media lately. Um, and that's something that helps sort of take the inflationary scorch out of the markets. And it really does. It's amazing how it works, but it does, you know, team that up with the SPR sale and the government's working overdrive to, to take, you know, the optics of inflation out and it works. So, you know, those forces are going to be pushing and pulling and constantly coming back. Like you said, though, it's the physical side of the market that doesn't seem to lie. You know, the the reason that Prince Abdulaziz, you know, who's essentially, you know, Saudi's um, OPEC energy minister um, from Saudi Arabia is saying, you know, he sees the physical disconnect. They, they're charging their Asian clients, you know, for physical cargoes, you know, prices above the offer and getting paid on one side and they're looking over to us markets and the paper market is spilling into you know new lows and open interest is nose diving so there's less and less people involved in the commodity and you know that's why the people at opec are saying okay if you guys are going to distort the price that way we're going to cut production right we're, we've got an economic slowdown to point to you know you guys are artificially manipulating the paper price he called uh, the biden administration out on that so that's an interesting dynamic to watch. And that's the kind of the push and pull that we're seeing on the screens right now, you know, between oil almost breaking out through 93 after the PPI number two weeks ago to it collapsing to a new low of 73 today. That is literally the push and pull between those SPR sales and the OPEC cuts. And it's fascinating to watch. 
Uh, the other part of that equation, and I'm glad you're, you're bringing up the demand side, you know, the big debate about China. You know, is China opening, not opening? You look at that spike in COVID, you know, cases, you know, huge spike. Although I've pointed out on Money Talks that it's really interesting. Uh, and you just, I just don't know what's going on there. I mean, I don't, you know, who's, who understands it, but they're killing their economy. But sorry, on the other side, you get how many, how few of them have symptoms. They've locked down yeah. a city and they've got 30,000 cases and they found three people with a symptom, you know. Right. See, so that's the point where, like, you know, it looks to me like Xi Jinping decided that COVID was going to be his personal, you know, little wag on the global economy. Right. If he wants it to look strong, he has to, you know, say COVID's fine and everything's going OK. If he wants it to look weak, all he's got to say is I might lock down 100 million people. And the oil market goes down $5 and bonds rally and everybody shits themselves, you know? Yeah. And I think what's interesting is that we may have proven that, at, you know, as sad as it is, though, I think it's kind of out in broad daylight that this zero COVID policy is one of the more batshit crazy policies that any authoritarian has tried to put on his people in a long time since evidence of the people that died in that fire. I, I think that that's something that the world is not going to move past. And I think there'll be more and more pressure on G to loosen up on zero COVID. And I think I just read today where he's getting recommendations in white papers that he needs to. Yeah. So if that if that if that politically doesn't hold any water anymore in China, that's a big sort of a drag off of the commodity markets, in my opinion. Right. Commodity traders, you know, every single one you talk to, whether you talk to somebody in grains, metals or energy, Every one of them has got an eye on whether Xi Jinping has, has got leverage to lock down the country, right? Because that's the, that's the wake up and you're out 10% before you figure out what happened risk, you know? So every trader's got that on their mind. And if you remove that and the market starts to sense that, I mean, it could be why, it could quite honestly might be why copper levitated from 7,600 sitting just above the 2019 highs to 8,600 to where it is now. You know what I mean? It has a little bit to do with the falling dollar, but definitely a little bit to do with that perception that G is not going to be able to get away with zero COVID forever. So we'll see how that pans out, too. That's a really tricky one. Uh, let me come in. I'm jumping around a little bit, but in the commodity sector to gold. I just wanted to yeah. make sure I don't forget to ask you about gold. Hell yeah. Gold is, you know, we, we managed to, uh, you know, we managed to capture you know, a nice 25% move in GDX on uh, for my clients in the view matrix just for having the love of that chart pattern. Quite honestly, you know, you watch gold go down seven consecutive months in a row. You watch GDX go down right alongside it. And then we ran into the Bank of England when the gilt market came apart. And we ran into the Bank of Japan when dollar yen went to 150, right? And they both intervened at those levels. That turned out to be the dead ball high in the dollar index when nobody thought that anybody was going to stop the dollar from rallying, right? You remember that a couple of months ago, people were like, I was getting slammed on Twitter for saying like, guys, that's a good high in the dollar index. Like that's a good high on the board. It's got the Bank of England intervention there. It's got the Bank of Japan intervention. And people are ripping my arms off saying, Tori, the Bank of Japan has already intervened. You know, this is the second time. And you're like, yeah, but this is the first time with the Bank of England on their side two weeks ago, you know, for different reasons. But the bottom yeah. line is it was it was for, it was for the same reason. Right. It's for the weakness in the foreign currencies and the weakness in their credit markets, which is why they're suffering so much weakness. And if the central banks decide to come in and stop it. 
that's always a good reason for the dollar to turn. And now we've got the dollar dumping between uh, below the 200 day moving average in the dollar index. And nobody saw that coming at all either. So th this is the one pivot here that I think that the market is a little bit behind on still. So I think gold can go even higher. I think metals can still go higher. I, I still think the world wants to short the recovery trade. I, I think they want to short stocks into the rally. I think they want to short commodities into the bounce. You know, anything that has to do with, um, you know, markets getting better or improving, it feels to me like the initial reaction is guys want to sell it. So but with that U.S. dollar, uh, you know, uh, index uh, or looking at the U.S. dollar against all these major currencies, I mean, to me, that would just spell, as you've alluded to, I know I'm reiterating, but, you know, very positive for the commodity sector. You know? 100%. This yeah. is something I'm banking on now. You know, it's it's we we just we just. We just spent, you know, the entire year of 2022 making money being long commodities with the dollar rallying. Now, one of two things is going to happen when the dollar stops rallying. Either the correlation is going to stay the same and commodities are also going to stop rallying. Or what looks like is going to happen is commodities, commodities are going to have a fire lit under their ass and there's going to be another leg higher to this trade. Do you know what I mean? Like yes, a rallying, yeah. a stronger euro right now has obviously changed the complexion of gold from being, you know, seven months in a row offered to finally having an up 8% month in November. And it's finally violating resistance levels. So it looks good, looks good on the charts. And the prognosis in rates now, you know, with a little bit lower inflation expectations and a little bit easier economic expectations, you can imagine that rates can back off a little bit further until the inflation genie comes back and bites them all in the ass. But we'll see when that happens. Right now, it's not a problem. Can you just uh, give us a quick, uh, you know, and again, these are uh, the questions to Barbara Walter-ish, you know, like uh, <laughs> I've been invaded by her soul. But uh, you know, the quick the quick take on the overall market action that you're seeing. Um, S&P? Yeah. Yeah, the stock market is, uh, in my opinion, about to surprise people on the upside. We, the, the one thing that you know, stands out to me like a sore thumb is that while we built that negative sentiment bubble that we were in quite literally over the, uh, you know, through the fall when the markets were tanking to a new low, when the S&P was sitting around 3,600, we got data out one, one morning. I forget what the data was, but that was the day that the S&P spilled 100 points to 3,500 and right back to 3,600 in the same breath, right? And everybody that's got, you know, our kind of years of experience sees that kind of price action and says, whoa, that's reversally, really reversal type of price action, right? And there was still some volatility after that. There was still a lot of stock changing hands after that. And not mysteriously, the market kind of just crept higher and higher and higher. And everybody that was short didn't want to believe it. You know, we're back into that period where stocks are going up and the economic data is bad. And people that don't think that people that don't understand that one, they aren't apples and apples are saying, what the hell's going on here? You know, we can't make so that you know that they can't buy into this rally. And we just had this massive negative bubble and there was so much short position out there that there's really no place to go for the S&P but up right now, especially if rates are going to back off, right? So I think that's kind of the predicament that um, the bearish S&P trader has found himself in now. Um, we managed to, to convert ourselves to bulls at the right time. We've been long for this. And a couple people are throwing in the towel, and I'm kind of trying to remain long for this because I don't see the catalyst that turns us over right now. 
at least between now and the end of the year, Mike. One of my big things that I, the reason that I, that I clock percentage moves and performance so hard over the course of a day, a week, and a month is because when the trends over the year start to develop and you get down the stretch of the year, those trends usually just keep flying in whatever direction they were going, right? Yeah. The guys that were buying energy all year are now inhaling energy because it's the only thing that's working. And guys that are long tech into the end of the year saying, let's see, if I have another year long software down 50%, down 40%, that's getting expensive, you know? So maybe we should cut that down because if rates keep going up, I'm still going to have a problem long all this software. So that's just a, a way of thinking where I tend to think into the end of the year now, the last couple of weeks. I don't know, especially after Powell the other day, you know, kind of going, you know, I don't want to crash the economy is the new dove, right? So he was just saying, I'm going to lay off these big, gigantic rate hikes. And that's where we had that outsized move yep. through the moving average close in the last hour last Friday. So to me, that was a conspicuous potential beginning of a new leg of this rally, because before that, it was pedal to the metal. We're here to fight inflation. We've got to get rates up. Right. That, that was the only message we were getting. And that was perfectly clear. Now that they've got everything to back off and you see the Fed chair say we don't want to wreck the economy. Holy smokes. I wouldn't be short stocks now with anyone's money. And by the way, everybody in the real estate business in the U.S. is going, you're too late. You've already crashed my economy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, exactly. And that's another example. Another perfect example, Mike, the home builder sector. If you're a generalist today, you got to be short builders, right? Mortgage rates just went from three to 7%. And I don't know that you got out of that short yet, but I'm going to tell you, I don't know that home builders are going to cooperate anymore if rates start heading lower, right? If rates yeah. start ticking lower, there's going to be no offer and there's still people sitting there short the most interest rate sensitive sector of the market. So that's another one that I could get behind. I haven't pulled the trigger yet, but I haven't taken my eye off the chart either. Well, as I say, there's so much we're talking about. That's why I'm so looking forward to you joining us at the World Outlook. But I want to tell people, Tony's just launched uh, the, the icebreaker. It's easy to go. Go to tgmacro.com. Navigator to TV. Navigator, uh, Navigator TV. TV. Thanks. Yes. Yep. And we'll put all that stuff up for you. But you've got it's just a great summation of what's going on in the market. And, of course, the Morning Navigator, as people look forward to on a daily basis. And you're on Substack, too. You are well, that's a busy it. guy. Here, yeah. let me let me let me give you the organization of it, Mike. So I just yeah, launched yeah, at tgmacro.substack.com, I just launched Navigator TV. That is going to be a free product that I launch. It's basically going to be my front end that's going to let me get to know with the get to know the world and let the world get to know me. One of the signature video that the Substack offering is going to be all audio visual. So no written content, which is what I put out every day on the Navigator, right? That's, that is still a subscriber-based model that you can subscribe to on the website. The Substack video and audio is going to be all free. There's going to be three different types of audio video content, one of which is the icebreaker. That's the um, video that I've named the icebreaker, which is a recap of either the previous week or the previous month's performance. And then there are going to be um, individual um, chart looks where I just dissect one chart pattern that's going on that I like. And then there will be other market updates where I come in and just where I have really high conviction on certain things. I'll come out and I'll say, look, this is what I think is happening. This is how I think it unfolds. And my money's where my mouth is. 
so those kind of offerings I'm hoping will be, you know, things that draw people to get closer to me, closer to the navigator, maybe want to be in my Slack channel, which is more fun than a frog in a glass of milk. And, um, you know, that's where there's 150 traders kind of banging out every day where we're going to make money. And it's a really, really great, great um, community. So that's the list of my entire list of offerings without being too salesy. I just wanted to kind of organize it for your audience so they know what's going on. And much appreciated. But I, also, I'll just add one more thing. It also uh, such a wonderful overview of what's going on. And then yeah. traders and someone with you know years of experience interpretation of what's going on, and then yeah. how you can employ that in your own personal financial investment portfolio. So, uh, I, and by the way, also on Twitter, uh, Twitter you mm -hmm. know, uh, you put stuff on Twitter on there. So yep. uh, again, we'll put all this. Well, we did yesterday. We started on yesterday on Friday. We put stuff out, uh, you know, about awesome. uh, all of those things and, and just reminding people you were going to be with us. Uh, anyways, it's great stuff. Look forward to seeing you in February. Uh, Tony, thanks so much for finding time for us. You know how much we appreciate it. Oh, I love it. I love it. I can't tell you, Mike, I am going to really, really polish up this presentation for you guys in February. I want to try to make some noise when I come out there. Great stuff. Awesome. Thanks so much today, Mike. Time now for the quote of the week, and it's a brief one. Uh, Brackrock's Larry Fink at the New York uh, Times Deal Book Conference. Now, with all the attention, by the way, paid to FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, no one really noticed it. Uh, by the way, Fried had a pretty good quote himself amongst over a dozen apologies when he turned his persona from a tech genius into someone who doesn't know much about anything, stating, I didn't even try to commit fraud. Well, I guess fraud came easy because he sure did a good job of it. But in all the hubbub about that interview, Larry Fink's, I think, more noteworthy comment, his statement, sort of got lost in the shuffle. This is what he said in quotes. I actually believe we're going to need hydrocarbons for 70 years. I better repeat that because this is the CEO of the largest asset manager in the world. They got something like 10 trillion under management. He says we're going to need fossil fuels for 70 years. Maybe not a surprise given the forecast by experts like the International Energy Agency that fossil fuels will still be the dominant source of power by 2050. Of course, that's just under 30 years away. And Mr. Fink is saying another 40 years. Well, come on, let's face it. He and I and maybe virtually everyone listening today will not be around at that point to check if he was right. But what we do know is that given the lack of practical planning for obtaining or purchasing the materials necessary to the widespread adoption of renewable energy, as I was mentioning earlier, especially you know needed battery storage, that kind of development, and the opposition of some climate groups to the development of those very resources they need for renewable energy, et cetera. Also, by the way, the opposition to nuclear energy, the only viable emissions-free uh, option there. I mean, uh, it looks like, you know, the time frame certainly could be a lot longer than anybody suspected, or at least the rhetoric was going over the last 10 years. Now, I could go on, but instead, let's focus on one fact that's been overlooked when advocates talk about the elimination of fossil fuels, and that is, Petroleum's used in over 5,000 products. I mean, whether we're talking about asphalt or lubricants for major machinery or, uh, you know, uh, trucks, that kind of stuff. You, you could be wearing Lycra, by the way, or, or cosmetics or synthetic rubber used in tires. You know, a huge percentage of over-the-counter medicines are petroleum-based. Homeopathic products, vitamins are made with benzene, which is a petroleum product. And, of course, anything plastic. 
and replacement products made without hydrocarbons is a long way off. So that's another thing, as I say, we seem to overlook in this big discussion of no fossil fuels. But being realistic and practical, come on, never been a strong suit of climate activists and their political allies. I mean, every week it's the same thing, probably every day. People are wondering what's going to happen with interest rates. No surprise, record amount of individual debt, government debt, corporations scrambling. So, of course, they look at the different measures. I want to bring Michael Levy in right now to talk about one of them. I mean, Mike, uh, you know, employment's been on the radar, well, really back, uh, you know, a, a few years when the Federal Reserve really emphasized that their job was also employment. So people watch the employment numbers to say, hey, if they're really weak, that means maybe they don't have to raise rates as much. If they're really strong, oh, oh, that means this. So we got employment numbers both out of Canada and the U.S. yesterday. And I kind of felt they were a bit mixed, the U.S. stronger, but Canada was sort of, mm, you know, you could read anything you wanted into it, depending on what you wanted to have happen from the Bank of Canada. Yeah, I've I found that the Canadian rates uh, or, or or the unemployment rate and uh, the stats that go with it were a bit of a yawn, Mike. Just you know, okay, ten thousand new jobs, uh, unemployment ticked down to five point one percent. There's still strong wage growth, and I think that's really important because that is inflationary. So even if uh, employment comes down a little bit, if we get the inflation coming from wage growth, it's not going to make that much of a difference. But uh, my take on it is that the Bank of Canada is going to do 50 basis points. Like Tiff Macklem said, and we're going to go into next year and do 50 or maybe 25, or maybe he's going to skip. Mike, that's all just window dressing to me. And I mean, just it's going to have to be that inflation comes down before they're going to give up on this. All they're doing is spreading it out. We said it last week, spreading it out. They're going the same place, just slower. And that could be a little bit more hurtful to the average Canadian. Well, I can see, as I say, people who want them to slow down are, you know, kind of happy because what we increased to the sort of the net jobs to 10,000 in November, but that compared to 108,000 in October. So that's clearly a slowing trend. Uh, but as you say, the other noteworthy thing, again, I'm just looking at our individual pocketbooks here, you know, average wages grew by 5.6%, as you say, well, at least, you know, as I say, worried about individuals trying to keep up with inflation. We'll see if that did at that month, but it doesn't look like it will, but it's getting closer. But that's been pretty persistent in that 5% range. Well, Mike, to me in Canada, it's the same goals, just slower and longer, but not, none of the goalposts have changed, Mike. Well, and let's go south of the border, obviously, because what they do also has a tremendous impact here. Uh, I, I, again, people will interpret the numbers uh, I think, to really suit their previous position, their existing position. But you did see more robust there. I mean, yeah, they lost 138,000 jobs, but they gained 263,000. So, uh, you know, it's still out there that, again, anyone was looking for the current rate increases to have really decimated the, uh, the job market. They're not getting the data they want, you know, and it no, looks the like <laughs> the Federal Reserve isn't getting the data they want if that's what they're looking for. 
No, they sure aren't, Mike. And when you look at consensus, I mean, consensus is not just a couple of guys sitting in a room. Consensus is what we would call so-called experts, so-called, you know, the economists, those people uh, from from the investment industry, those people from the U.S. Fed. And uh, they, they, it was about a 200,000 consensus. Well, uh, the, the hiring came in 30% above that. And uh, there was a bit of a negative revision to the prior two months. But, um, you know, the Fed has not made a dent in employment and wage growth. Uh, and again, accelerate, acceleration in wage growth of six-tenths of one percent month over month. That's double the consensus and upward revision to the prior month and uh, left the annual pay, uh, pace at 5.1 percent versus 4.6 percent consensus. So, um, you know, the unemployment rate... Uh, remained unchanged at 3.7%. And I know I'm throwing a lot of numbers at you, but Mike, 3.7% is around record low unemployment for the U.S. That hasn't changed. Yeah, and I think that all throws it out the wall. As I say, some people will look at the internals of the market and say it's weakening, you know, if you look inside the job market. But the point is, I don't see anything there that says to the Federal Reserve, we've got to stop this uh, uh, hiking in the interest rate uh, scenario. I don't think they got any data that they needed to say, yes, we're going to slow down, you know, significantly. Uh, again, I, I bet they go to wait and see. We'll have to, we'll have to wait and hear what uh, Jerome Powell has to say, the Federal Reserve has to say. But I just didn't see th anything in the numbers that shouts, oh, stop raising rates. Uh, you know, I, I said to you a moment ago for Canada, same goals, just slower and longer. We're going to reach the same place. It's going to be painful. It's just that it might not be a, uh, a tortuous uh, uh, a wound. What it's going to do is we're going to be cut by a thousand or wounded by a thousand small cuts. And I don't mean cuts. I mean, just they are. It, it, this is not going to be easy. They're not going to make it easy. I don't know if it wouldn't be better to give us the three quarters of a point uh, interest rate hike and keep doing that and break the back of it. It would certainly throw us into recession. But I don't know, Mike, that we're not going to be thrown into recession by what's going on. Just it oh. might be a little longer and a little, I don't know, maybe not as tough. But this is where we're going. And everything to me indicates we're going to recession. Yeah, well, we're going to hear a lot more about that. That's going to be the debate as soon as we get the Bank of Canada, for example, next week, giving their uh, you know pronouncements on interest rates. The debate begins eight seconds after whatever they've said, you know, at that point, because it's key. As I say, uh, so many people, as I say, uh, the pain thing, we've got to be careful with that because, I mean, I, I know a lot of people are in pain as they come to renew their mortgages. Uh, variable rate we've talked about, but there are 52% of people out in British Columbia, for example, have a mortgage under two years, similar numbers across the country. That's, that's where you feel it most directly as an individual in your pocketbook. And of course, we'll be there to chronicle it. So uh, Mike, yeah, I mean, as I say, this is a, a clear case of to be continued. And Mike, I guess if I were to sum up in one sentence, labor statistics in both countries, the US and Canada, will be at the forefront as the most important indicator to the direction of inflation that is labor statistics and wages which is why we talk about it mike have a great week you too mike thanks time now for the shocking stat of the week you know farmers protests in the netherlands by the way would put traffic to a standstill remember that for weeks at one point they created a 700 mile 
traffic jam. Obviously, it's a big story in Europe this fall as protests spread to Germany, uh, Italy, Poland. Although there was very little coverage in Canada, maybe because it was just a little too similar to the truckers' protest. But the farmers' fears have been realized. With the Dutch government taking the first step to cut down on nitrogen pollution, they have mandated that as many as 3,000 farms must be sold or shut down in order to meet European Union's climate and nature preservation goals. I mean, if, and by the way, if farmers don't sell willingly to the government, they are going to be forced to sell. <laughs> it's incredibly. They have something called the nitrogen minister, Christiane van der Waal. She told MPs that compulsory purchases would be made with, in her words, pain in the heart. Oh, that ought to make the farmers feel better. I don't think anyone should be surprised, though, that both the short-term and long-term plans to dramatically cut emissions by 2030 with closing farms has upset many farmers. After all, we're dealing with their livelihood and a way of life. They are angry about being singled out while sectors like aviation remain untouched. And by the way, last December, Prime Minister Trudeau announced Canada's goal to reduce nitrous oxide emissions by 2030, which experts agree that means you've got to cut back on fertilizer if you're going to get that done, and that reduces crop yields. But this all comes at a time when the World Food Program, that's the world's largest humanitarian organization, estimates that 50 million people are facing emergency levels of hunger in 45 countries. In just the last two years, the number of severely food insecure people has increased to 345 million. It was 135 million in 82 countries. That's a, draw, a jump of 210 million in a short period of time. But obviously the climate issue is more important to activists and political allies than the prospect of hunger in developing nations, which is why they continue to oppose natural gas as part of the no fuel agenda. If you're a regular lister, you know that natural gas produces ammonia and urea, two key components for nitrogen-based fertilizer. And that shortage has helped propel fertilizer prices to record highs, taking it out of the reach of farmers in developing worlds, uh, developing nations, which in turn reduces their crop yields. But what's shocking is the insensitivity to increasing hunger and starvation of the climate crowd. I mean, consider the importance of the farm sector in the Netherlands. It's number two exporter of agricultural products in the world. It produces 4 million cows, 13 million pigs, 104 million chickens annually, and is Europe's biggest meat in exporter. It also provides vegetables to much of Western Europe. But like the poor in the developing world, the farmers in the Netherlands are just more casualties on the altar of climate alarmism. Let's bring Ozzy Jurek in right now. Uh, I've got a lot of thing on my mind, Ozzy, but I want to start with this. There was a survey done. They looked at the 100 best metro areas in the world. And yeah, Canada was represented. I wanted you, I know you've seen that survey, but uh, tell us what, I, what they found. Yeah, the company is called Annual Resonance Consultancy, and they deal in tourism, real estate, economic development. And they ranked the quality of a city, its reputation, and its competitive identity of, of cities that have a million or more people. So they look at, is it desirable, not just for locals or visitors or tourism or business people, but rather they're looking for livability uh, for everybody and as together. And so interesting enough, Toronto is ranked number 24, Montreal number 57, Calgary 65, Vancouver 69, and Ottawa came in at 96, just ahead of Hanoi. 
<laughs> Sorry. It's hard to hear that without laughing. Hey, we beat Hanoi. That's fantastic. Okay, let's let's slow down a little bit on that. So uh, top-ranked city was Toronto in the country, out of the 100, but the, the Canadian entries there. Montreal at number 57, Calgary 65, Vancouver 69, and Ottawa, now being referred to as Hanoi East, uh, came in at 96th. Okay, well, give me a couple, a couple of the comments they made about our cities. Well, the interesting thing is Calgary coming in 65th means it's come ahead of Vancouver. And ACR says... People in Calgary walk like New Yorkers and cut to the chase like Texans. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but they have another rating for Calgary. It's, they rate number 22 globally on a GDP per capita subcategory, which makes it the highest in Canada. I found that very surprising. Okay, so why not Vancouver? Well, in a nutshell, high housing prices. They call us the most Asian city outside of Asia. We are smart as, is, as we are gorgeous. Too bad about the price of entry. Oh, is it, tell me what this, what cities ranked up top there. Well, the best ones, of course, were London, Paris, New York, Tokyo, and Dubai, which are sort of, uh, I guess, they have it all. I guess in terms of uh, lifestyle and livability. Well, those those you know these kind of surveys are kind of fun, but I look at those, yeah. uh, you know, London, Paris, New York, Tokyo, Dubai. I don't want to live in any of them. Okay, so there you go. It's not on my, they don't rank that high on my list. Hey, uh, you know, more important in this is I saw a forecast from uh, Bob Rennie and his company. Uh, and of course, there people aren't familiar with them. They're just major, major players in the real estate market for a number of years. I've known Bob uh, through his charity work, uh, you know, uh, condos development, et cetera. But here's the thing that jumped out at me, Ozzy. It's a theme that you and I have been talking about. And there's more stuff on it this past week is that, the level of in-migration, uh, immigration uh, coming into Canada and coming into British Columbia, for example, because it's still the number one place, but it's Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal. All of that stuff, to me, puts the floor on any drop in housing because the demand comes from newcomers coming in. Well, that's right. And he's saying, actually, in a study that it's period, we are entering a period of above average population growth nationally, but particularly more acutely here on the West Coast, you know, so he looks for a million plus more people over the next 20 years. In the last 20 years, we had about 800,000 more, about 40,000 a year. Now he sees 52,000 a year every year. I mean, you look at our total population of about 5.3 million as of this July, then you can see you add a million people to that, uh, that will have some serious impact. Well, and again, we were doing the stats on Calgary and Alberta, you know, going back a couple of weeks ago. And again, that's been one of the big shifts there is the in-migration. And again, the direct link to supporting housing prices is obvious. And, you know, of course, across the country, they're talking, I'm just talking the average number, the goal for the uh, for the federal government is 500,000 newcomers each and every year for three years and beyond, but they just gave us those numbers. We know what's been happening. So it's interesting. And as you say, uh, you know, Vancouver was the least affordable market, you know, just about anywhere. And so this just means that there's going to be more of the same, I would think, when you get that much jumping into, especially an area like the Vancouver Lower Mainland. Yeah, and they say in this in this study, the ACAR group, that Vancouver's housing prices now now mostly hitched to a global context rather than local wages. But then we have never been affordable. But the, the what the, Rennie did, he took those million people that are coming and he broke them down in age groups. And he says the age group of 65 and better will have 346,000 more seniors, 
we'll have 142,000 more kids. And then we have more workers, 554,000, which is also important because you have somebody has to pay all the old age pensions. Well, well, I also, I posted this this week because uh, the census, you know, the Canadian census, more data came out from the 2021 census. But I still think one of the overriding economic issues there is that if you're 65 years and old, older, that had an increase of uh, about nine, well, it's about 19% of the overall population. 15 yeah. and under was only 16%. We've been chronicling this on Money Talks that we, we crossed the point a few years ago where there are more seniors than there were young people. As you say, the implications are massive when it comes to, for example, social programs like, you know, Canada Pension Plan was always predicated that we would have more workers entering the workforce than leaving as retirees. Well, that's clearly not the case anymore, puts tremendous pressure on pensions. But as you say, this is just... Uh, uh, again, re-emphasized uh, with the Rennie statistics showing really quite a significant difference. So in the population growth of uh, people 65 and older compared to, well, in their case, they were doing zero to 24. It's not even close how many, you know, the, the difference between the increase. I should mention that Rennie is not looking at the population overall in BC, but that million increase. Yes. They actually see more workers in, in numbers, 554,000 than more seniors 346,000. But of course, of the totality of population, what you say is totally correct. But he has another little statistic, which is uh, kind of fun, because he always maintains that we have more houses without a mortgage than many other places in the world. And he says in May uh, 2011, uh, in the metro Vancouver area, we had $185 billion of mortgage-free housing. And he says that has grown to a spectacular 385 billion as of May 2021. And of course, that is a massive increase in the wealth of, uh, of the metro area. And 54 and younger people have about 91 billion, 75 and over have nine, also 90 billion. And the age 55 to 74 have about $205 billion worth of equity free homes. Yeah, it's an interesting stat. I mean, obviously, that's the goal. People don't want to be out there borrowing money. I wonder, I mean, you'd have to go and you can just make guesses anecdotally about what's happening. I think as people get older and they've been in the house for, for years or on a mortgage for years, obviously, they have a chance of paying it off better. Uh, you know, that's one of the factors there. Uh, others, uh, of course, with the rise in real estate prices, especially as you saw in these major urban areas led by Vancouver, you know, you can sell, downsize and pay off your mortgage. That's another one of those things. But it's a fascinating issue, you know, that obviously is impacted these days when you see, uh, you know, the mortgage rates continuing to chug up. Uh, it doesn't affect all homeowners, that's for sure, uh, especially when you give numbers like that. It's obviously those with mortgages. By the way, I saw another stat uh, when you're talking about that out in British Columbia, that 52% of all mortgages are going to mature in the next two years. Uh, so obviously impacted by you know, the higher mortgage rates. So again, it all comes together. I mean, the housing market's dynamic, but the in-migration, that's a check mark if you want higher prices or at least uh, prevent them from dropping down. Uh, interest rates rising, that's a negative. It's all that mix that you look at at ozbuzz.ca every week. Yeah, thank you very much. I, I would just uh, mention to everybody, my motto is live life large. And I have a little video on Jurok video on YouTube where I, I call it Live Your Money, where I talk the average homeowner in Vancouver at $2 million, really a multimillionaire. So I have this 
advice to everybody that's a little older, that if you are older, go cabin one or your heirs will. <laughs> yeah, no wonder I'm getting that. I'm getting that advice from my kids saying, oh, no, dad, you don't need to do that. <laughs> All the way. Ozzy, ozbuzz.ca, ozbuzz.ca. Have a great week. You too, Mike. Great show today. Thanks to, uh, you know, the market insights we're getting from like Tony Greer. And that's why I've been looking forward to hearing uh, Victor Adair, victoradair.ca. Victor, I mean, I, I just look around there and I'm just saying I'm standing back and I'm going, my goodness, this is volatile. You know, my goodness, this sort of range of moves is so, it feels to me at least so sharp. And of course, as a trader, that's what you've got your eye on. Well, as a trader also, Mike, I mean, my number one goal is to manage risk. And with these really short-term volatile markets, I am reducing size. You know, I mean, you might think, hey, if you could catch some of these moves, you get rich overnight. Yeah, and if you <laughs> you're miss them. hitting on the wrong way, you can lose your shirt overnight. So the volatility, I mean, just a, for instance, we had WTI crude oil at an 11-month low Monday of this week. On Thursday, it's $10 higher. You know, that, that's just that. I mean, silver, I think, is up $2 or something this week. It's up nearly 30% in the last six weeks. Whether, you know, whatever market we're looking at, it, there's just this short-term volatility, just wicked. And, and you look at that again, as I was chatting with Michael earlier, obviously with Tony, but I mean, come on, it's all eyes still on the Fed. Everybody looks at whatever data. It happened to be the employment numbers on Friday, uh, Jerome Powell's speech a few days earlier. It's just, I, I'm not surprised. You've been talking about this for a number of years. It's, I mean, I remember talking about it with Alan Greenspan. Like all of a sudden, presto, who's the all-star here? You know, all eyes on, and there's certainly all eyes on the Federal Reserve and on Jerome Powell, and it seems to ripple through every market. Well, we've had these events, and, and Wednesday is a great example. The market was, I believe, prepared for Powell to continue to wear his tough guy hat, basically to say, you know, inflation is a real problem, and we got to do what we got to do to get inflation down and damn the consequences. You know, that's kind of been the Powell we got used to. I mean, he hasn't totally changed in a, you know, a whole different guy, but what the market heard it was him say something to the effect of, well, maybe it's time that we slow the rate of increase in. And there we went, like within, a, I don't know, a few minutes, it was longer than that, but the Dow's up 900 points, you know, so, yeah. uh, and a lot of this short-term volatility, whether it's a CPI report or whatever, has to do with the question, what's the Fed going to do? If we only knew that, you know, we could solve all the problems in the world. Uh, let's come to the U.S. dollar just for a sec. Uh, Tony was talking about it earlier with us. Uh, you know, again, you've been chronicling the fall against the British pound, for example. We were, you were right on, you know, with the rise of the U.S. dollar and then the warning, you know, it's time for a break. Well, it took a break from the U.S. pound, took a break from the yen. Those are key markets. Took a break from the euro. And uh, it just seems to hold, again, such great importance when we're looking, for example, at commodities? Well, the U.S. dollar hit a three- or four-year low in January of 21. Uh, it rallied uh, just about 30%, made a 20-year high in September. And certainly this year, the main reason behind that rally was the Fed's going to be way more aggressive than anybody else. And that really brought, uh, at margin, brought capital to America 
I've also said for years that capital comes to America for safety and opportunity. So there was that as well. And also in the currency markets, when trends get going, it's like they keep get keep going and they turn on a dime. So we had the market turn lower in uh, September. I think the dollar index is down about 9% since then. Uh, you know, I don't know where we're going from here, but I would say this, if you knew there was going to be a recession in the USA, uh, I'd say you'd probably expect a recession to be worse in Europe. So you'd be a buyer of the US dollar. And uh, I, I, by the way, I subscribe to that. I don't see how Europe yeah. gets out of this at all because of the high energy prices just to start with. Uh, again, I get another stat this week I put on Money Talks tweets and uh, Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook, which was that, you know, they've lost about 20% of their industry in Germany is considering moving away permanently. And that's a consistent stat that we've seen because they know their energy problem isn't solved and they see no sign that it's going to be solved. So why not move our industry somewhere i.e. if Canada had its act together, we could be a nice destination, but we're not giving that vibe out there, but the U.S. probably better. So so I don't see how Europe uh, at all comes out of this without you know much stronger recessionary pressure. But again, tons of very fine analysts are coming out saying, look for a recession sort of uh, you know in the second quarter, maybe uh, starting maybe March, but second quarter of 2023. And uh, so it seems that scenario is on is all I'm saying. Well, and that's that's great. I'm glad, I'm glad you put it that way because I think the stock market lately has been kind of in an environment where bad news is good news. And it sort of goes like this. If the news is, oh, gee whiz, the economy's slowing down, there's layoffs, uh, you know, people are losing their jobs, uh, the cost of things go up so they can't afford to spend so much money. Oh, great. That means the Fed will start to lower interest rates and away we go to the races with the stock market. I'm sort of looking a little further ahead right now than I would normally with my trading and say, well, if we are headed toward a recession, then, and I think the bond market is telling us that, you know, the bonds have been rallying here for the last six weeks and the longer duration, in other words, the further you go at the curve, the, the stronger the rally has been. And that, and we've also got, of course, got the inverted yield curve where short rates are higher than long rates. But I think we might get to a situation here where, if we get bad news, like the economy's in trouble, you know, the stock market is going to go, oh, gee, that's not good for stocks. And capital would move, just generically, move from the stock market to the bond market. As I say, back to the original thing I said, the volatility, let me finish with one aspect further to get you to elaborate on it. Vic, at this time, well... You can get the Santa Claus rally. I, I, I've got to come up with one of those cliches, by the way, and copyright it. But the Santa Claus rally, uh, and you look at, you know, so the market maybe has that little recovery, but I'm still looking at liquidity problems. Bottom line, that's my biggest concern. And uh, you look at volume shrink, because uh, you informed me uh, again earlier in the week, you said, hey, look at these open interests. They're, they've shrunk so much. There's just not as many players involved. That, that to me is a sign that at least people should be well aware of. Across a lot of the markets I look at, whether it's crude oil or anything in the energy complex or the metals, a lot of the grains, you know, the price action has been so volatile that people have been backing away. I think I just said that at the top of this interview here, that <clears throat> the volatility, it's nice, but at the same time, I'm trying to manage risk and I, I will back away. I'm not going to take a big position home overnight. A lot of people are doing the same. So that that lack of liquidity, the lack of participation, 
actually is like a vicious circle makes the, the, the volatility even worse. So, you know, that's how it goes. And, and we'll probably get more of that. And one final point, Mike, to address you the thing about the stock market. This is still seasonally the strongest time of the year for the stock markets. And January is when we typically get the biggest flow of retail money you know, the beginning of a new year comes into the market. So, you know, I'm, I certainly don't want to give the impression that you should rush out and sell everything in the stock market right now. I'm just saying, you know, looking ahead to the first quarter, second quarter of next year, if you thought a recession was coming, then maybe, you know, bad news is no longer good news for the stock market. And we'll be here to chronicle it, of course, on a weekly basis. But you can also, you don't have to wait for that. You can go to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. And, uh, of course, check it out. Victor will be with me at the World Outlook Conference also. But victoradare.ca. Vic, go out and have a terrific week. Thank you, Mike. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. And it starts with an uncomfortable question. Are you enjoying your iPhone if you own one? I'm asking because in March 2020, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute issued a report that chronicled the use of slave labor in four separate facilities that are part of Apple's supply chain used in manufacturing the iPhone and other products. A report released by The Information estimates that between 2017 and 19, an estimated 80,000 Uyghurs were forcibly transferred to work in factories across China. It's not just Apple, though. Tommy Hilfinger, Adidas, Esprit, Calvin Klein, Nike, H&M, Lacoste, other well-known global brands have been accused of using both child labor and forced labor. But here's a truly shocking stat, by the way. World Vision Canada estimates that forced labor or child labor is implicated in $34 billion worth of products imported to Canada annually. But today's Goofy focuses on Apple. In December last year, it was revealed that Apple had signed, in 2016, a $275 billion secret agreement with Xi Jinping's communists in order to manufacture and sell its products in China. You know, Apple has effectively partnered with the Communist Party. And that comes at a price, at least when it comes to principle and generally accepted Western values. Ignoring human rights abuses is just one of the conditions of the partnership, but it's more than that. Apple's actually facilitated the communist surveillance state. I'll give you a few examples. You know, on the anniversary of Tiananmen Square massacre, Apple banned any song that mentioned the incident on its iTunes stores. It banned the Taiwanese flag emoji. It has also removed apps like Voice of America, uh, apps with the Koran or Bible at the Chinese government's request. We know that Apple's moved data from Chinese users of Apple's that were saved in the iCloud to computer centers that are owned and operated by a Chinese state-owned company. So much for Apple CEO Tim Cook's big talk about the importance of privacy as a fundamental human right. I could go on, but I want to flash forward to a couple of weeks ago at the Foxconn factory in Jinjiao where iPhone 14s are assembled. And the unrest by workers, it was working conditions, as a promised pay that didn't arrive. But here's the thing. The protests were viciously put down by police. Barely a word from Apple. Certainly no criticism of the communist response. Not a surprise, again. You know, nothing about the tactics of beating protesters. And we shouldn't be surprised with the revelation this week that in cooperation with the Communist Party, Apple has put a 10-minute cap on receiving files in airdrop in China after it was used by protesters to spread posters opposing Xi Jinping and the Communist government. 
oh my God, I can't believe I'm saying this, but come on, the facts are there. When it comes to ignoring human rights abuses, money clearly talks. And Tim Cook, Apple, many others in the corporate world are listening. But how about you? See, personally, I've had a conflict with this. So I've had to stop buying Apple products. I've made that decision. And I might add, it's finally, it's about time I did. So I'm currently shopping around for a new smartphone, for example, and it's not going to be an iPhone. It's only when customers, though, stop buying products that action's going to be taken. Apple's clearly feeling some heat, by the way, because the company's looking to move some manufacturing to countries like Vietnam. But you know what? I'm going to wait and see. But here's the question. It's over to you. Hey, by the way, just a reminder again that we do have the World Outlook Conference coming up. Uh, you just heard Tony Greer earlier. I am really, I'm, I'm thrilled that he's coming, but I'm really looking forward to hearing him there at the World Outlook Conference. But it's February 3rd and 4th. Easy to do. Go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. And I'm not even sure if we, we just announced this. We may have run out already, but the next 100 people are going to get a one ounce silver wafer. Uh, by buying their tickets. So don't wait. It's also Christmas coming up. This makes a great gift to share with people. And of course, I'm proud of the track record. I'm exceptionally proud. That's what we're trying to do here is get it right. And we certainly have got it right at the World Outlook Conference and the major trends on money talks. But as I say, simple to do. Go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. And in the meantime, just know that I do appreciate when you tell friends about money talks, that you share some of our content. I do appreciate it. You can go to Money Talks Tweets, Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook, and of course, mikesmoneytalks.ca. And in the meantime, I hope you have a wonderful week. This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell, available at mikesmoneytalks.ca or through your favorite podcast subscription service. Join us on Facebook at Michael Campbell's Money Talks and on Twitter at Money Talks Tweet.